When we think about diabetes, we don't often think about the molecular mechanisms of the disease. Luckily, a team of talented scientists are doing a lot of thinking about it. I'm Krista Lamb, and today on the Diabetes Canada podcast, I'll be talking to Dr. Jennifer Estell about how her work looking at molecular changes in diabetes might help in better understanding the condition and developing new therapies. Dr. Estell is the Director, Molecular Mechanisms of Diabetes Research Unit at the Montreal Clinical Research Institute. She is also an adjunct professor in the Department of Experimental Medicine, Anatomy, and Cell Biology at McGill University in Montreal. In addition, she is the 2020 winner of the Diabetes Canada Young Scientists of the Year Award. Welcome to the show, Dr. Estelle. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's really exciting to be here and to talk to you about our research. Yeah, I'm looking really forward to this. First, I have to say that the Department of Experimental Medicine sounds like a very cool place to work. That's one of those awesome titles <laughs> where I was like, that is cool. I think it's a title they came up with because it's really broad. It covers a lot of things and it's people working in the lab, right? So we're experimenting. Yeah, well, it sounded very, very awesome. So first off, I think some of our listeners, they're going to hear molecular mechanisms and it might be a really unfamiliar term. So can you kind of give us an overview of what that means and how it relates to diabetes? So what we really want to understand is what is going on inside your tissues in the body when you have diabetes, right? So when your liver sees too much sugar or your pancreas sees too much sugar, you know, what are the cells doing to respond to that stimulus, right? And so the molecular mechanisms are what is happening inside the cell in response to what's going on outside and then how it deals with it, basically. So for someone living with diabetes, if they were to say, what's your end goal? Like, what are you hoping with your research that you will be able, are you looking at therapies? Is there potentially something down the road that would, you know, be curative? And this is obviously down the road, <laughs> but just so we understand what kind of the possibilities would be. So obviously, you know, the end goal is always to figure out how to get rid of this disease. But what I've always been inspired about and wanting to learn is how the disease starts actually. So our research really focused on the early changes, the early things that go wrong in the body that cause all of the organs in the body to kind of start behaving badly or not communicating with each other properly. So I personally think if we understand the disease better and that we're kind of naive now and we think we understand the disease really well, but there's so much more we have to learn. That if we understand it, we can then better come up with more innovative and exciting and new ways to treat it instead of kind of going down the same road that we always do is, you know, targeting insulin, targeting glucose. I think there's really a lot more to learn. Yeah, that's an excellent point, because I think we need to understand how something works before we can make it work better or fix it. So that's a really good point. So why don't we talk a little bit about some of the projects that you have going on in the lab right now, because there's some really exciting work. And I think that would help a lot of our listeners to understand how this all comes together with some examples. So my lab is funny because we have kind of two sides, right? We have one side that works on the liver and one side that works on the pancreas. I've organized it this way because we have very two basic questions in the lab. One is we want to know what really controls how much sugar you have in your blood. And we've done a lot of research, me 15 years of it has really pointed me toward the liver. I think the liver is really important. I think it really integrates a lot of signals in the body. So we focus on the liver because we think it helps to control glucose very well. 
The other side obviously is the pancreas and the major question around that is why do these cells that produce insulin, the beta cells, why do they die? In diabetes, whether you're type one, type two, or you know, Modi, Lada, all of the different types, it doesn't matter. Eventually your beta cells don't respond well and they die. So why? And so we're really looking early on in the disease to figure out what are the signals? What are the stresses that these beta cells are seeing? Why are they dying? And these two questions work together because a lot has to do with the glucose, obviously. But an overarching theme of our lab is how do all the organs talk to each other? Diabetes is really a disease of many organs. It's not just the cells that produce insulin. It's not just the glucose that's circulating around. It's not just your muscle not being able to take it up. It's all of these muscles talking together and somewhere that conversation gets messed up. That's super interesting because I've talked to a number of researchers who are looking at beta cells over the last few years. And one of the things that they're really unsure of is because many of them are trying to build new ones or make them in the lab or do all sorts of things is, you know, we know that our beta cells kind of get tired. They kind of don't work so well when it gets to type 2 diabetes, but we don't 100% understand why. So is that sort of what you guys are looking at? And if so, how are you doing it? That's exactly what we're looking at. So I think if you look at the history of diabetes research in humans or in animals, a lot of the research has been done at really the late stages. They make an animal diabetic or someone is diagnosed with diabetes, they've had it for many years, and this is the point at which we start studying it. The damage is already done. And that's a limited tool. You can't learn a lot once the damage is done. So we are trying to figure out what's going on early on. So we're really trying to take what they think are the initial stimulus in people, which happens to a lot of times be a poor diet or lack of exercise, and model that in a mouse and say, okay, what are the early things that are going on, right? What are the changes that are happening in the muscle, in the liver, in the fat tissue, in the pancreas? What are our cells telling us about the stresses that they're seeing? And so one big focus we have in the lab is trying to understand how having a fatty liver actually can contribute to diabetes. There's a lot of research in patients now showing that people who have particularly type two diabetes also have a fatty liver. And we're like, well, okay, does this happen before you get diabetes? Did it happen because you have diabetes? And we think there's a lot of evidence to support that it's before actually, and that it's contributing to the problem in your pancreas. So we're trying to model this in mice, give mice you know, a situation where they would have a fatty liver and fatty liver disease, and then figuring out how is that communicating with, with the beta cells? How is it causing stress to the beta cells? How is it changing how they're you know, secreting insulin or other hormones? So we're looking at these crosstalk signals between the, the organs, but really early in the disease, like before the mouse is really sick, before their glucose is really out of whack. And I wanted to follow up because for someone listening who might not know what a fatty liver is or how it develops, is that something that can happen just because of your physiology or is that something that's completely related to diet? Can you explain fatty liver? It's definitely not completely related to diet. There are some genetic components to it. Uh, the liver is actually built. It's a wonderful organ. I love it. <laughs> but it's built to store excess lipid. And it's, it also is very important for breaking down excess fat. So fat is constantly coming into the liver and it's constantly being either broken down or stored or used. And one prime example is this when you're sleeping at night. You're not eating so that your fat tissue is being broken down that fat is going to your liver and the liver is using it for energy. 
So at night, you'll start to see a buildup of this fat in the liver. It's completely normal. What happens is when this process doesn't go well and the liver starts just accumulating fat. And this can happen over the period of years and years. And the problem with this is that we know it makes the liver unhealthy. It's not good to have lots of fat in the liver all the time, but it's asymptomatic. It's very hard to detect in people. There's no symptoms. You know, you wouldn't know you have this. And this is why we're starting to suspect that it might come before diabetes, actually. Diabetes might be a very late consequence of having this unhealthy liver. So the way that we can initiate it in mice is we give them diets that are really high in fat and sugar. And that will kind of stress their liver out and they won't know what to do with the excess and they'll start building it up. And then we can start to look at how the liver deals with that. And we know that, you know, mice that have certain mutations can deal with it better than others. So we can figure out what pathways in the liver are really important for it. And I'm going to ask you this question because I was asked this question recently when I was giving a talk and I didn't know the answer because I am a journalist and not a scientist. But why do you use mice? Oh, there are many reasons. One, they're mammals. Well, we're mammals. <laughs> Their physiology is actually very similar. I know that many scientists, there's a lot of resistance against using mice. And I think that stems from the fact that researchers will kind of overinterpret their data. They'll say, this happens in mice, so it must be true in humans. And that's not necessarily true. But I do believe, after working with them for so many years, that a lot of the things that happen in mice is very similar to humans. We're just not interpreting them very well sometimes. Mice are, they're small animals. They're easy to breed. They, you know, they breed fast. Logistically, they're very easy to use. So ideally, we would use larger animals, but it's just harder to do so, like physically harder to do so. The facilities needed are big, much more money is needed. So I think it's a good compromise, to be honest. Mice are a good compromise in terms of our ability to use them in the lab and make discoveries on a realistic time frame, and then also translate this to humans. And I think that there are many examples of things that we have found in mice that are very relevant to humans. We've discovered a lot. So I think they're a very useful tool when you understand, you know, the limitations of them and that whatever we find in mice, we always have to then go to the human situation and say, okay, is this really true? Well, that is a much better answer than the one I gave, which was I'm not really sure. Um, you should ask a scientist. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about more of what's going on in your lab, because we've talked a little bit about it, but I always like to ask people, what are you most excited about? Is there a project specifically that you're working on right now where you, you're just really seeing something that's making you excited about going to the lab every day? We have two. So I think they're the main projects we have now funded in the lab, and they're really Personally, they're exciting to me. I've worked on them for a long time. So one I alluded to was how I think when the liver can't deal with this excess energy that you get from fat and sugar, one, it doesn't break down these energies properly and you end up getting too much glucose and too much fat in your blood. That's one thing. But you know, we know the liver is also an endocrine organ, which means that it secretes hormones as well and secretes other things. We think of other tissues. We think of the beta cell often doing the secreting insulin, glucagon. But we don't think of the liver as actually putting things out into the body, but it puts lots of things out, lots of signals. And so we've started trying to identify what are the early things that the liver puts out into the blood that signals that, hey, things aren't going well, I'm not able to deal with this excess nutrients, this excess glucose, and I've got to secrete this hormone or metabolite something 
and what those do to the other tissues actually. So the liver is secreting signals all the time. And the liver is the first organ that sees what you eat actually. What's absorbed from your intestine goes right to the liver. So it's really a huge communication hub, but we don't really understand what the liver secretes at all. So we're trying to understand what are these early signals and what is the liver trying to tell the rest of the body to do. So we're analyzing the blood of the model systems we have of the mice and in cells, we use it in cells too, to see what's being let out and what that does physiologically. What do these signals do? And so this, it's in early stages, but I've identified a lot of inflammatory things that cause inflammation that are released from the liver, different metabolites of nutrients that would cause problems in the pancreas or cause problems in the fat. So it's, again, it's this communication between the organs that we're really focusing on. The other project in the lab is we are, again, focusing on why beta cells die, right? When they're too stressed out, why do they die? And why do some people, their beta cells die and other people's their beta cells don't die? And we have identified a pathway inside the beta cell that normally kills the cell. But we think that if you activate it just a little bit, it actually helps the cell adapt. So we want to make the cells like better able to adapt to the stress. So if we can strengthen that pathway, they can see stress and deal with it better instead of saying, oh, too much for me, I'm going to die. So we're really working on that pathway. And that pathway we think has like a therapeutic relevance, like we might be able to target it to make stronger beta cells. Yeah, which would be very exciting for those people who you know, don't have beta cells or are wondering why their beta cells have died off. So no, that's really, really interesting. And right now it's a really unique time to be doing research. And so what have been the impacts on your work of the pandemic? Have you guys had to shut down? Have you been able to keep doing some of the work? We shut down fully for about three months from March of last year till June-ish. We slowly were able to come back. So definitely there was delays in work. You know, we work with a lot of animals. And so those experiments were kind of stopped, delayed, you know, and things take a while to come back. So, you know, a three months delay for us translates into a year long delay in things because everything... It's like you take two steps back when you have to stop. But the people in my lab were really re resilient and, you know, they were able to bounce back. And we've been able to manage now with the physical restrictions that we have in the lab in terms of distancing and things. I think one of the biggest challenges in research we've had is the funding situation. Charitable organizations really took a hit during that process. We rely a lot, you know, on Diabetes Canada and other organizations, the CIHR at the federal level to fund our research. And there was just administrative delays, but also it's been difficult to raise money. You know, people have, their worries are elsewhere for sure at this point. Like there's more acute things to worry about or more pressing things to worry about. And so there have been a more delays in funding. And this has really put a strain on our ability to continue the work we're doing, but also there's a delay in developing new projects, right? Because you're worried that the money is not going to come in to fund these new ideas. I think that's been the biggest challenge. Yeah. And I think for every lab and every researcher that I've spoken to, we feel that because it's, it maybe not, isn't going to be something we feel the impact of tomorrow, but down the road, you know, we've really lost a lot of progress. And so, and it is true. People have a lot of other things that they're worrying about. And some research isn't at the top of all of their lists for donations. And that is very tough. So I think we're all feeling that. I wanted to talk to you a little bit also, though, about your role within the diabetes community, because one of the things I love most about talking to researchers who work in this community is that 
often, and especially with basic scientists, they may have had no idea that they were going to end up working in diabetes. It may not have been an end goal on any level. But then once they become a part of the community, they find it really inspiring. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the journey for you personally becoming involved in the diabetes community and how that's gone for you. <laughs> this is a funny story. I tell it often and maybe I shouldn't make it widely <laughs> available. But, you know, personally, I didn't have a lot of experience with diabetes before I entered research. Uh, when I finished my university training at the undergrad level, I didn't know my next steps. And that was when I fortunately <laughs> ran into Dan Drucker. Our paths crossed. I was looking for, you know, a summer project to work in a lab. I wanted to see whether I liked research or not. I didn't know whether I'd be good at it. And he saw my resume CV looking for, you know, a graduate position. And he emailed me and said, hey, are you interested in coming to my lab for like three, four months in the summer and just working as an intern? And I said, okay, well, I don't really have any other options, so I'm going to do it. And I went and you've spoken to Dan, you know, he's a basic scientist at heart, but also a clinician. So he can see both sides. It was a time in the lab was super exciting because it was the early 2000s when the GLP-1 based drugs were not on the market yet. They were not available. So we were really doing a lot of the stuff in the lab to test whether these drugs could work, what they were doing, how they worked, you know, trying to figure it out at a basic level. And it was exciting to know that these drugs were very far along and eventually that they would be used in patients. So we, we felt that the work we were doing was really important, right? Because you can see that there was an end. And so it was an inspiring lab to work in. And that's really started my journey of why I became interested in the disease and the complexity of this disease. It really opened my eyes to how complex it is and how much we really still don't understand about it. And that environment was very supportive and they supported my journey onto the next steps. And my training just continued toward trying to broaden my expertise, right? Go beyond just GLP-1 and the, the gastrointestinal system to the whole body and try and understand the whole body and how it works. It's really wonderful that you mentioned Dan, because of course, Dr. Dan Drucker, for those who might not be familiar, has been on the show before. And I had the pleasure of covering him in a chapter of the book that I recently wrote. And he talks so much about how, you know, unless there's a human implication to what he is doing, that he's not so sure he wants to do it. And the other thing that was really striking was that I had the opportunity to speak to so many of his postdocs and grad students who have gone on to do incredible things. Dr. Aaron Mulvihill, Dr. Elodie Varin, Dr. Julie Loveshin. I could go on and on and on with the incredible array of talent that has come out of that lab. And Dan recently won the Gardner Award, which we call the Baby Nobels, because so many people go on to win a Nobel after that. And so coming from a lab like that, what advice would you give to other young scientists? Because that's a pretty awesome place to start. Were there any things that you learned that you hope to pass on to your own students? Oh, I learned so much in that lab. And I think you already mentioned one was that he always brought us back to what is the relevance of what you're doing? Like, why are you inspired to do this? What could be the impact? You know, he's always telling me to just start in humans, like think about the question in humans. So that's one thing that I try to do in my own lab is always bring it back. Like, can we find evidence or studies in humans that would support what we're doing or support our hypothesis, right? I really lucked out in just kind of falling into his lab. I didn't do a lot of research ahead of time to like figure out where I wanted to go. 
what I try to tell people now is when they're looking to where to go is you meet the people in the lab, right? Talk to them about their projects. Don't just talk to the PI because if you talk to Dan, you know, like it can be, you know, he has a dry sense of humor. He's very humble. So the excitement might not come across, but if you talk to the people in his lab, they're the ones who will tell you. You can tell that they're excited about the work they're doing. They can explain their projects. They know how it could impact people, how it could impact diabetes. So, you know, you can get this feeling from the people around you of whether this would be a good environment to go to. And I think that advice helps people, like not to just enter a lab blindly because the inspiration is really from the team. And that is excellent advice. Having met many of the team members for some of the PIs there, there's so many great people in the lab and they're usually the ones that can give you the uh, 411, as they say. So my last question for you is that last year you were named Diabetes Canada's Young Scientist of the Year, which was really exciting. We were so happy to see you get that award. And I just wondered what that meant to you and how it felt to get that. My first impressions, I was just in shock. Like, you know, I I feel maybe I'm still naive or in denial, but I feel like I still am very new to this field as an independent researcher, I feel like I haven't really made much of an impact. So I was surprised to get the award. It's hard for me to recognize like, what have I done that has really changed anything yet? But it means a lot to me. I mean, Diabetes Canada has been part of my training through my PhD, through you know my postdoc, through my tenures in the lab. It's really been an integral part of my life for a long time. So to get an award from them that recognizes, you know, something that I've done back for the community is, it's an amazing feeling to have. And to be part of this list of like, I can look back at the list too, of people who've gotten it. It's just like, really amazing. And people have really done a lot of great things. So it's kind of big shoes to fill though. It's a little bit intimidating. Well, everyone was very happy because I think that there are a lot of women in science who will find your win very inspiring and show them that they are very much capable and very much doing amazing things and that they have these incredible role models to show them that, you know, you could too win one of these awards. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really glad we had the chance to have you on and talk about some of this stuff. It was really an honor to be invited to this and it's been a really a pleasure talking to you about this. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Estelle for joining us on the show today. I'm Krista Lamb, and you've been listening to the Diabetes Canada podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe in the podcast provider of your choice. If you have questions or comments, you can reach Diabetes Canada on their website at diabetes.ca. And if you liked this episode, please drop us a review in the review section of your podcast provider or a five-star rating. They really do help people find the show. Thank you for listening.